with me to Nehemiah 13. We are actually wrapping up the book of Nehemiah over two weeks. We're going to tackle chapter 13 today, and then next week we're going to kind of wrap up Nehemiah. Those of you that uh, have known, we've been going through this book for a large majority of the summer and uh, have just been wrestling with what does it look like to to understand the example of Nehemiah and to live it out in our own life? What does it look like to be a person who's committed to the city? What does it look like to be a person who's willing to get involved in the lives of others, to invest for the kingdom? What does it look like to, to step into some unknown thing and to really to build, to construct, to be a part of something that is beyond ourselves? So as we jump into chapter 13, let me do a quick um, recap of the book. We start off in chapter 1, and uh, Nehemiah gets a visitor. He's in Susa, he's hanging out with King Artaxerxes, in fact he's like right by him all the time because he drinks and eats the food before Artaxerxes does, that way if he falls over and dies, then Artaxerxes gets a different dinner, okay? So Nehemiah's playing that role, he's kind of like a bodyguard, he's protecting the king, He's around him all the time, and uh, his brother comes to visit. Brother shows up, and he says, uh, you know, brother, we got some bad news. Jerusalem's city lies in ruins. Its walls are destroyed, and its people are, are faithless at this point. Nehemiah is so struck to the core at that moment that he, he begins to weep, tears his clothes, he throws ashes on, he's sad, he's, he's dis- distraught. Now the weird thing about this is that this wasn't new news to him. It wasn't like this happened a week or two before. It actually happened 134 years before. 134 years passes, he's heard about this before, but for some reason, in a unique way, he gets captivated by the idea of being involved. So then all throughout the book, we see this picture of a, a man who is committed to prayer and committed to action. So he, he sees the situation, he begins to pray about it, and then he says, well, somebody's got to do something about it, so it's going to be me. So he gets involved. He goes to uh, King Artaxerxes, and he petitions the king to gr- grant him permission to leave his post as cupbearer and go and rebuild the walls. Now... The weird thing about this, we kind of talked about King Artaxerxes. His dad was King Xerxes. Those of you who are familiar with the movie 300, he's the crazy dude with all the piercings. King Xerxes, okay, he's the one that him and his dad destroyed Jerusalem years before. So he's going to the king and he's saying, King, this area of my forefathers that you previously destroyed, I would like you to grant me permission to go rebuild it, and I actually want you to pay for the endeavor. Give me the lumber, give me the timber, give me all the supplies. And King Artaxerxes, obviously because of God's grace, says, that sounds like a splendid idea. So he sends Nehemiah on his way to go rebuild the wall. Nehemiah is uh, on the journey. He gets to Jerusalem. He surveys the land. He looks around. He continues to pray, and then he gathers the people. He realizes that this is an all-hands-on-deck kind of affair. It's not just him coming in trying to do something, but he he seeks to build a community of people. And so as he does, you got perfume makers, you got bakers, you got all these people who come out of the woodwork to help build the wall. In 52 days, a wall is built. 
some people speculate about 20 feet wide, like at its uh, base, and then uh, maybe 13, 15 feet at the top. Uh, it's quite a large wall. This isn't putting up a backyard fence. They do it in 52 days with opposition. So there's internal opposition, there's external opposition, there's people kind of trying to bar their way, and yet they continue to move forward, accomplishing purposes. As soon as they're done with the wall, Nehemiah shifts his focus and begins to seek to rebuild the people. Nehemiah realized that this wasn't just about the city, but more importantly, it was about the people of God. And so he shifts his attention directly to the people, and he becomes the governor of the people. He begins to, to instill proper laws. He begins to care for the people. And in fact, he and Ezra get out. They start at a really good place, the Word of God. They grab it. And they stand before the people and they read it. In one section of uh, Nehemiah, it says, For a quarter of the day, they stood and read the text. At the conclusion of that, for a quarter of the day, the people weep and repent. And then for a quarter of the day, the people stand and praise. So revival is starting to break out in the people. What happens is they, they're convicted that they understand that there is a holy, amazing God that they serve, and their disparity between His holiness and their sinfulness overwhelms them to the point that they say, God, we, we need to fix this. And so we will covenant with you again to be your people and to follow you. So covenant takes place right around chapters like 9, 10, 11, where they begin to say, we are going to establish some um, kind of some things that you've already stated. We're going to agree to them again. We're going to sign this document. We are going to live like your people. Then, Kevin, last week, spoke about this idea of purifying and dedicating the wall. So as soon as this covenant has been made, they decide to kind of celebrate. They said, the wall's been built, we as the people have been rebuilt, and so they have this purification ceremony, they dedicate the wall. In chapter 12, verse 43, it says that there's so much rejoicing that it's heard for distances, meaning that they gathered in the city, made such a ruckus, praised so loud and so hard, that people miles away heard the noise. So it's all of this is kind of a background as we come to chapter 13. So right at the end of chapter 12, Nehemiah gets done, dedicate, purify the wall, and then he leaves. I mean, this was a temporary assignment. He wasn't supposed to be there very long. But in fact, he's there for 12 years as the governor. So he builds the wall in 52 days. Then he governs and cares and disciples and and works with the people for 12 years. Now, I think, this is a little side note, that perhaps the Church of America needs to take a little understanding from Nehemiah's approach. Because I think sometimes what we do is we make the wall the most significant thing. What I mean by that is we spend time on the organization of the church. We try to build the church, we try to build the programs, we try to make systems, we try to create something where people come and do certain things and then leave. The reality is, 
Nehemiah understood that the church is the people. That he's going to say, you know what, if I'm going to spend a time and an effort and an energy building something, it's going to be building the people. Because the people are the church. When we get it backwards, I think we miss the whole thing up. What, what needs to happen is us understanding that it is the people of God that need to be developed. It is, it is the church. It's about kingdom work. It's not about creating a bigger building, creating more people in a service. It's about the kingdom of God. Nehemiah understood that it's about building the people. And so he jumps through all these hoops, he, he, he works as hard as he can, he governs the people, and then he takes off. We come to chapter 13, and here's what happens. Nehemiah has been gone. Commentators speculate between 6 and 12 years. He's gone for about a decade. So he, he ruled for 12 years, leaves for 10 years, comes back on the scene in chapter 13. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into chapter 13, but instead of me just being a talking head up here and reading it, here's what I want us to do. You're going to get in groups of three, four, five, seven, however many you want. You're going to circle up, find one designated reader. You're going to read chapters 13, verses 4 through 27. Here's what I want you to notice. Nehemiah comes back to the city. When he gets back, he realizes that the people that he built have been compromised. So what I want us to do is read it, then we're going to come back together, and then we're going to discuss what that compromise looks like. How did the compromise show up in the people of Israel? And then we're going to talk about the significant piece is, what did Nehemiah do about it? Okay? So find a couple people, read the text out loud, circle up, and then we're going to talk about what are the ways that compromise happened this is your first time at New Community, welcome. All right, I'm hearing a little bit of a lull, so I'm going to assume that we uh, have made our way through verse 27. So let's talk about it. So we said that Nehemiah comes back after a decade, re-enters into the city, and finds out that compromise has taken place, that the people that were people of faith are beginning to act in a way, live in a way that is opposite of the faith that they're proclaiming. So here's, here's my first question. In what ways did you see compromise take place in this particular chapter? Someone tell me. In what ways did you see compromise take place? Okay. They stopped tithing. Why is that important? Someone tell me why that's important. Okay. It demonstrates a lack of trust in God's provision. Someone else, add to that. Why is it important? Okay, because the Levites couldn't eat. You notice that what happens, it says, is that the Levites went to the fields and began to work. The reason they had to go to the fields is because they had to feed their family. The reason they had to feed their family is because there was no food or tithes or offerings or, or anything coming in for the Levites who were supposed to be the people leading the nation to worship and follow Yahweh. Any other reasons why that's important? Other thoughts? Yeah. I mean, if, if they're not doing it, the reality is nobody else has been given permission to do it. So people aren't coming to the temple to worship. 
People aren't coming to offer sacrifices. People have begun to neglect their faith as a result of a lack of giving. Okay? So what's another area of compromise? Okay? Sabbath. They neglect the Sabbath. Why is that important? What's the significance of that? Or why is that a problem? Okay, it's a day of rest. Good. What else? Yeah, they're conforming to the culture around them. Good. I mean, there are unique people who God has said, you specifically are to set aside a day to honor and remember me. A day for me. And they're going, well, I mean, God, that kind of makes sense, but there's a lot of, lot of profit to be made on Sabbath. I mean, we could just keep working. Work another day, got more in the bank. This is, this is good. Right? Why else is that a problem? Any other thoughts? On ignoring the Sabbath? Again, yeah. There's again a lack of dependence on God's provision. Another idea would be this. That they stopped seeing themselves as human beings and rather began to see themselves as human doings. Don't we do that? I mean, we quickly shift to... I mean, you greet someone. Say hi to them. Maybe the second, maybe the third question is, what do you do? It used to be that we asked people who they were. Who are you? What family do you come from? Where do you live? Now one of the first questions is, what do you do? You begin to be defined by your doing rather than your being. This is another issue for the people of Israel. Okay, so give me, uh, give me a third one. What's the third area of compromise? Yeah. Okay, lust. Yeah, they married outside of the culture. They intermarried with foreigners. Why is that a problem? I mean, it doesn't seem that big a deal, right? I mean, they were probably really beautiful, probably worked out well, probably less dowry expense or something. I mean, who knows the whole, but, I mean, you've got a, an issue. Why? Why is it a problem? Okay. The, the biggest issue is they begun, they began to be so intertwined with the culture around them. In fact, the point that Nehemiah makes in the text is the kids don't even speak the language anymore. They don't carry the customs any longer. They, they are not distinct as a people group. They've begun to look just like the culture around them. Compromise has set in. Any other, uh, one kind of final compromise that at least stood out to me in the text? Yeah. Yeah. Tobiah is living in the temple. I mean, they, what they do is they go in to the sacred area of the temple. They clean out all the sacred items that would be used for sacrifices, that would be used to set up the temple. And they go, hey, Tobiah, you're an opposer of God. You're an opposer to the plan of God. Why don't you just move in? Why don't you set up shop in the temple? Now, th this is a problem not just because of the lack of sense that that makes, but this is a problem because you realize the people then had a different understanding of the temple than we do of this building that we meet in. 
This building does not contain the presence of God any more than, especially now today, we embody that presence of God in the world. We are, as the scriptures say, the temple of God. Back then, the temple of God was actually the temple of God. It's his presence. It's his closeness to the people. So what they're doing is they're creating the enemy of God a place in the very presence of God. They've begun to neglect the house of God. To the people then, care for the temple was equal in some ways to care for God. The way that you treated the temple demonstrated your care, concern, love, passion for this God you serve. And so we find that the people of God have compromised. In fact, turn really quick with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. Go just a page over. I talked about this covenant that they made. And if your Bible is like mine at all, there's a, a little heading that says the obligations of the covenant around verse 28 or so. I'll just walk through them really quick. The first obligation of the covenant is found in verse 30. It says, we will not give our daughters to foreigners. They specifically broke the very covenant that they had made just years before. Then, verse 31, we will not buy anything on the Sabbath, God. We will set that day apart as holy. Verse 32 to 38, we will tithe of our first fruits. Whatever you've provided for us, God, we will give back to you. And then the last one, verse 39, they specifically said, we will not neglect the house of God. All of these things that we just mentioned as areas of compromise, they began to live in that compromise. They began to be defined by it. I was reading a quote the other day by D.A. Carson. It says this. It'll be up on the screen. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. The people of God were drifting aimlessly, not toward holiness, but toward a, a lack of passion for God. I started thinking all week long, what is it that causes us to drift like that? What causes us to compromise? And I'm convinced it comes down to disbelief. It's really an issue of belief. See, a lot of times what we talk about is the issue of circumstances. That circumstances come into our life, and those circumstances dictate the actions we take. Right? So this, oh man, this, this thing happened to me, and I had to respond the way I did, simply because of the circumstances. But the reality is this, that we never drift toward compromise, never, because of the circumstances. Now that might sound like a pretty audacious statement, because you could probably think of times where, no, no, really, Russ, the circumstances totally dictated 
how I responded to a situation. But the truth is that drift is always a result of what we believe or do not believe. Always. It is the circumstances that simply bring to the surface the disbelief that already exists. I mean, when you start to think about what is it that causes you to do the things you do, it's not an issue of outside forces. It's an issue of inside belief. For example, what we believe in theory, which is our theoretical belief, sometimes finds itself lived out as functional disbelief. You understand what I mean? We believe something in theory. We go, we, yes, I agree to that. I believe it. It makes sense. But when the rubber meets the road, when the practice comes, we lead a life of functional disbelief. I'll give you a personal example from my life. I would tell you unequivocally that I believe that God is sovereign. I think God is in complete control of everything. I believe that whatever he decides will happen, will happen. I believe that about God. But when I'm faced with a circumstance in which I'm kind of nervous about the outcome, I bite my nails quite a bit. I get worried. I get fearful. I get anxious. I get like, oh man, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I mean, God worked it out for good the last hundred times, but this is the hundred and first time. I don't know. I, who knows if he's going to come through this time. This is kind of, we're hanging out on a ledge. I mean, this is faith. This, I, don't, I don't like this. I'm nervous. I'm worried. I'm if you ask me, do you believe God's in complete control? Absolutely. Next moment, I'm fearful. Why? Well, I, in theory, I have a belief, but in function, I have a disbelief. I mean, a couple times this morning, provision came up. Why did the Israelites work on the Sabbath? Well, provision. Why did they stop giving to the temple? Well, provision. I think most of us would say, unequivocally, that God provides. That everything that we need, He provides. That He's the divine supplier. James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. That everything we have is due to Him and His provision for us. But in America, in Christianity, we have more debt than we've ever had before. Well, because we've decided that we'll provide, not Him. Or we do it the other way. We say, man, you know what? The circumstances right now dictate that I should probably put a pause on being generous with my money. Because, I mean, you don't, the economy is really tight. I mean, you, you know that, right? I mean, the circumstances are totally justify why I no longer am generous with my money. I need to hold on to it a little bit more. Well, that's, in theory, I believe that God will provide in the function. There's a disbelief that says, well, I, I can't continue to be generous because if I'm generous and give away money, then he certainly couldn't provide at that point. I mean, I'd put it out of his reach. It'd be a little hard for him. You get the idea, right? There's a disconnect. Really, to grow in grace, to grow in faith, to, to pursue Christ and follow him is to shrink, to shrink the space between what we believe in theory and what we live out in practice. And so in this idea of compromise, the people were beginning to demonstrate a lack of belief 
in God. And so Nehemiah steps into the scene in chapter 13. And he comes into the situation, and he does one thing that I think he's done throughout the entire book. He chooses to get involved. I mean, this is the crux for me of this book, is this passion on the part of Nehemiah to be involved. So in chapter 1, you notice it. He hears the story of, uh, of a compromised nation, a compromised wall. The defenses are down. And what does he do in chapter 1? He says, I don't care if it's been 134 years, and I don't care if I'm a cupbearer and don't even have an engineering degree. I'm going and building the wall. Because somebody needs to be involved, and someone needs to step up and do it, and it's me. And so he chooses to get involved. Now we come back to chapter 13, he comes and he sees a compromised people. And he has choices to make. I mean, if I was Nehemiah, there are times I would have probably just gone, I put in 12 years building the people. I mean, I'll just, I'll just pray about it and go back to Susa and sit by the king. Because that would be way easier. But instead he goes, no, I'm going to get involved. I'm committed to I'm committed to these people, and I'm connected to them. I think involvement is really this idea of being committed and connected. Committed to the people and connected to the people. First of all, this idea of commitment is really that Nehemiah realized that he was all in. That he was committed to this project that he started, but more importantly, that he was committed to the people. I mean, any time you commit to something, there's a cost, right? If you decided today to commit to a marathon, to run one, it's going to cost you something. It is. I mean, unless you're some superhuman athlete and you could just run a marathon tomorrow with no practice, it's going to cost you sleep because you're getting up early to go running. It's going to cost you time. You maybe you need to buy some supplies. You're going to change the way you eat. There's going to be all these costs. There's also going to be things that you gain, like a lot of pain. You know? Like, you make these decisions to invest in something, there's always a cost. I mean, that's what commitment is about, right? It's, it's about laying yourself, being selfless in something, because the cause is worth it. So Nehemiah steps into this situation where he sees a group of people that he's committed to, and he says, this is going to cost me something, but I'm convinced that it's worth it. And that's what mission is about. That's what discipling people is about. It's saying, you know what? The cost is minimal compared to the benefit. The impact on this community, the impact in the neighborhood, the impact in your small group because you choose to get involved, to invest, gets maximized as you put cost into it, as you put effort, as you work for it. So what are you committed to? If you took an inventory of your life, what would people say is your commitment? What are you investing in? How are you involved? Nehemiah was a man that walked into a situation 
10 years later and said, I'm committed to this. But I think he also walked in and he says, you know, I'm, I'm connected to these people. I've decided to attach my life to their life, and we're connected. He invested in a way that said, you know, we're a community. Now, I think we live in a society that sees community, just like we see a lot of other things, as a disposable society. I mean, we live in a disposable society, right? I grab something, I use it, I toss it out. I grab something else, I use it, I toss it out. I just dispose of it. It comes quick, it's easy, I use it, I get rid of it. I went to the, um, I had to get some tires for my van the other day. I drove to uh, the place, I needed to get one tire because it was flat. I get there, <clears throat> he says, well, what kind of tires do you have? Like, I know what kind of tires I have. I have no clue. Like, they're black, and they, they I mean, they roll, and I mean, now this one's not rolling, and I need a new one. I mean, that's, that's about what I know of tires. And so I walk in, and I said, I, I need a tire. He goes, well, what year is your van? I said, well, it's a 95. He goes, oh. I, he goes, I don't know what tire you need either. I go, well, why not? He goes, my book doesn't go back that far. Your book doesn't go to 95? No, it doesn't go to 95. Okay, well, what do I do? Well, we'll look it up on the internet or something. We'll figure it out. Like, we'll figure out the tire. So he did. He finally figured out the tire. But the reality is almost everything we buy, we consume, we dispose of. Cars aren't even supposed to last that long anymore. You just, you, you get a new one, you move on. The re, and what we do with community is the same thing. We go, oh yeah, I'm totally committed to you. I'm totally committed to your small group. For this next month, it is going to be awesome. And then, you know, I probably am out. I'm on to something else because it's good. I need to. We, we find ways to get in and get out quick. And for me, one of the, probably one of the best things that happened to me when I got out of college is I got into youth ministry. Because I learned real early on that when you invest in youth, they begin to see you as a family member. They, they see you as someone that's committed to them, period. End of story. It's not like you're committed to them for the next six months and then you're not anymore. No, you're like... You are in for good. I mean, I, believe it or not, I still have bi-weekly accountability meetings, either over the internet or on a four-way call on my phone with a guy in Michigan, a guy in Indiana, a guy in Illinois, and then me in Washington. Because they still want investment. They still want to be involved. I... I got a call the other day before vacation, talked with a 25-year-old guy that used to be in junior high with me. I mean, this is a guy that I spent time with, went, you know, like camping with him, I played soccer with him, I coached him, I did all these, and he just wanted to tell me for over an hour where he was at in life, the decisions he was making, he wanted my advice on whether he should have this roommate or not. He, I mean, he doesn't see this as a relationship that ended. He sees this as a relationship that will last forever because that's what being connected to someone means. I think being connected also has this idea of actually being known. I mean, did you notice in the text that Nehemiah 
probably was not the most popular guy during this little phase of his life, where he walks in to the scenario and he says, okay, you, you're selling on the Sabbath. I'm going to put the walls up, closing the gates. I'm putting guards there. You're not buying anything more. Because I know you enough to say to you, no, we're not doing that. That's, that's not what we committed to. Then you're marrying foreigners. Maybe he takes it a little too far in verse 25 where like he rips their hair out and beats them, okay? I, I mean, I, who knows? Maybe he's not taking it too far. But he, he, he's known and he's willing to walk into a situation and say, I know you enough and you know me enough that we can't, we can't live like this. Are you known like that? Do you have people that ask you the hard questions? And I have a friend of mine that, he's in Pennsylvania, we talk on the phone every now and then. And he knew my wife before he knew me. Loves my wife, great respect for her. He'll call me up and first question he asks is, hey, how are you doing? Great. Second question, always, second question. How are you treating your wife? I go, good, yeah, good. And he goes, if I called her right now, would she give the same answer? And I go, I actually, I think I would. He goes, you know I'll call her. I go, I know you will. I know you will. He goes, if I need to call, I'll call her. And I said, trust me, she will say, I'm taking care of her. I'm loving her. I'm, but you know what? The second question, he's asking. He's asking the hard question. I have another friend the other day. He's from Indiana. He called me. He goes, how are you doing today? And I go, oh, it's great. I'm having a great day. He goes, second thing he said, he goes, you're a liar. I go, what do, you, what do you mean? I haven't talked to you like in three weeks. What do you mean I'm a liar? He goes, talked to your wife earlier today. <laughs> I go, are you serious? He goes, yep, yep. She called me. And uh, she just told me, you know, what's going on. And so I'm calling you. And at first I'm like, you jerk. You know? <laughs> and the second thing, I'm like, I am so glad you called. I'm so glad. Because you're going to ask me the hard questions. Who's asking you the hard questions? Who, who have you invested in in a way that they, they're the ones that can come to you and say, where are you at? How are you doing? Because I'm convinced that being involved in people's lives means that you're committed and you're connected. That it's going to be a cost, there's going to be an effort. You're going to be known and it's going to be good because it's worth it. And that's what love is. And I think Nehemiah is a guy that demonstrates what it means to live missionally, what it means to be a man invested. And if Nehemiah is not a good enough illustration, there's another person by the name of Jesus Christ. If there was anyone who was ever invested, if there was anyone who was ever committed, that is known and wants to be known, it's him. Let's, let's think on that mean to compromise 
Are we walking toward holiness? And who are we investing in? Who are we known by?